ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When you think of Fiji, most of us would picture sandy white beaches, impossibly clear water, coconut trees. But if you venture in from the coastline, you enter Fiji's dramatic forests. Cloud forests, dry forests, wet forests, full of creatures found nowhere else in the world. Riotously coloured birds that hoot and bark, crested iguanas, monkey-faced flying foxes, ground frogs and tree frogs. All this week, Sarah and I are bringing you conversations from the Pacific. And in Fiji, I wanted to meet someone, a local scientist, who understands something of these beautiful, spectacular places, the forests of Fiji. Nunia Thomas Moko grew up in Fiji's interior. As a child, she actually lived in fear of the serpents and iguanas and the other creatures in the rainforests around her. But her parents encouraged her to become a scientist. And today, Nunia is a herpetologist. She's a biologist who specialises in snakes and reptiles, as well as rare indigenous frogs. Nunia took me up into a rainforest in the mountains outside Fiji's capital, Suva, which has a river running through it and a waterfall. It was raining softly, and up there in the mountains, it felt 10 degrees cooler than the humid air in Suva. Hi, Nunia. Hello, Richard. (laughs) We're sitting in the Tolo Esuva Forest Park, and in the distance I'm hearing this hooting noise. What's making that hooting noise? That's the bucking pigeon, which is a special bird. In Fiji, it's called the songe. It's a totem animal for some clans in Fiji, and what's even more special about it is that it's found only in Fiji and nowhere else in the world. It's an endemic species. What kind of forest is this that we're sitting in? Dolisuva forest is historically a, a mahogany plantation that has not been logged. It's been left unmanaged as a plantation to allow the native vegetation to, to grow back. And so it's a mixture of, of native forest and mahogany. And it's now, I think, has become an oasis or a, or a refuge for a lot of Fiji's wildlife, special wildlife. We're up in the mountain just outside of Suva. It seems a lot cooler here. Is that what the conditions are like here pretty much all the time? Yes. If it's sunny in Suva, you can be sure that it's not that sunny in Dole Suva. <laughs> You're a scientist who specialises now in creatures like frogs and iguanas and reptiles. Were you comfortable being close to reptiles when you were little? Oh, no. <laughs> I, was, I was terrified of them. And I think it's, it's to do with one being told that the snake was evil in a biblical sense. And then number two, you know, we were always threatened. Oh, if you do this, we'll bring the moko to to bite you. And then we also grew up with uh, stories like when you're in the forest and uh, and a big lizard falls on you, when you rip it off, it's going to take your skin with it. You know, so there's a lot of these negative stories around lizards and iguanas. And is that true if you take an iguana off your... Your arm, it'll take your skin with it? No, but if, it's, <laughs> if you take it off like really hard because it's got long claws, it will scratch you. It will you. scar you, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> no, iguanas are quite special, quite special animals. Once you start working with them, you realise they're, they're quite special. And when you started field work as a scientist, having those ideas in your head, did that make it hard to begin with when you're working with creatures like iguanas? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, with, I started off with frogs. Right, that was where my, my interest was piqued, but also I had to overcome my fear of handling them. They just seemed like slimy things that I just didn't want to touch. As it is, we had the cane toads. We grew up with the cane toads. Cane toads got here? Yes, cane from toads. From Australia? From Australia. Oh, no. Yeah. And so. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> if you ask anyone in Fiji if they know frogs, they'll tell you about the cane toad. It was only when I was in university that I learned that, that there were two special frogs. Uh, the Fiji ground frog and the Fiji tree frog. And so there were two things I had to overcome. One was touching the frog. But secondly, we had to go out into the forest at night. And Fijians and night in the forest is a big, you know, we, we don't like going into the forest at night because when we grew up, my grandmother would be like, come into the house. 
it's nighttime, it's dark. You're not supposed to be in the bush or in the forest in the night because the, the spirits will come and take you away. And my dad would have stories of when they would return from the plantation and if it was getting dark, after all the grandkids are in, his grandfather would go out again and call out each of their names. And then he explained that that was to make sure that the spirits came back too and wasn't left in the forest. Often legends like that are just really to keep you safe, aren't yes. they? But then they give you all these other ideas about what's contained in the forest. And how do you see the forest at night now when you're out in it? I find it beautiful. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a whole different world in the nighttime. Yeah. One of the creatures you've been studying for a while is the crested iguana. I've seen photos of it. It kind of looks like a dragon from Game of Thrones, except miniature. Can you talk a bit about what it, what it is and what it looks like? Yeah, so we have four different species of iguanas, and the crested iguana was discovered to be a different species from the other ones in the 1980s. It had more of a, a bluish tinge. It was bigger, but it's quite special because these iguanas are endemic to Fiji, but how they got to Fiji is an even bigger mystery because... They, the closest relatives of our iguanas are in the Americas. And usually our species uh, colonization of the islands, we would source them from the west, from PNG and uh, Solomon Islands. Like that's the, that's the way that species typically are, are known to move. But these iguanas came in from the other direction. And between Fiji, Tonga and the Americas, there's no occurrence of, of iguanas in between. So it's like the Marshall Islands between here and America, isn't there? And other islands, but they're not There's there? No, they're not there. They're only Tonga and Fiji. So maybe they came on a, a canoe or something thousands but, of years ago? But they, they, their bones predate human occupation of Fiji. So that's quite mysterious then. Yes. And there couldn't have been a land bridge at that Tonga time. Tonga and Fiji are oceanic islands. Of course. Formed completely out of volcanoes. But the iguanas are not the only ones. Um, our logo, which is Akmopal Saniana, is an ancient plant. It's a Gondwana relic. It was around at the time of, of Gondwana, but it's only Fiji, New Caledonia, and South Australia. Those are the only three places where this genus is found. So the biogeographers say, you know, Fiji has Gondwana relics. The geologists say, but we're purely oceanic. That doesn't make sense. Do you remember the first time when you had to do field work with a crested iguana and holding a crested iguana? I was so scared. My first experience with catching a lizard was really bad because it bit me. And when I got to the iguanas, I had to calm myself down to eventually catch it. Thankfully, they're not, they, didn't, they don't try to get away too fast, but then you have to hold it a certain way so that, one, they don't bite you, and then, number two, you have minimal scratches because you're going to get scratched either way. And do they get annoyed when you hold them for a while? Yes. They don't, they don't like being handled for too long, especially the wild iguanas because we were, we were working with wild iguanas. They just don't like being handled at all. And how do you try and calm a crested iguana that's annoyed? Oh. Do you talk to it? Oh, yes. <laughs> We've, it's, it's funny because then you start saying, it's okay, calm down. And, like, you know, and then you start to talk it like it's a little child. And you're a doctor or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And you try to pat it either by the chin or by the head and hope that that will calm it down. But then it's the color. You can tell that it's annoyed by the change in color. It's changing from a nice green to a really black color. And you go, okay, this guy's not happy, so we should just let it go. You're the director of Nature Fiji, Mangeti Viti. Tell me about this organisation and the work you do. We're a local conservation organisation. It was formed by seven individuals who'd been working in the area of biodiversity conservation for a long time. And they had just done a study of the status of biodiversity conservation in Fiji and they found that even though we had the existence of big international organisations in Fiji, there was no one really looking at Fiji's national priorities. Sadly, a lot of the work back then was driven by the donors, you know, what the donors' priorities were, which primarily started in the terrestrial environment, but then it moved to the marine environment. Uh, But they knew for conservation in Fiji, 
you needed to address the terrestrial environment because 99% of the plants and animals that are found only in Fiji are found in our forests. And we needed to have local ownership of the biodiversity crisis. A lot of the species were either unknown or critically endangered, and there was a lot more forest clearance, unplanned, a lot of fires, and the conservation issue seemed to be very much an expatriate idea. And a lot of the work, when it was being done, was sent back to the headquarters of the NGOs rather than building government capacity to be able to look after Fiji's biodiversity. And so the organization was formed specifically to look at species, to look at protected areas, to look at figuring out how we get local communities, local families engaged in Fiji's biodiversity so that we can care for Fiji's biodiversity and then to also help government honour their agreements, the, the multilateral agreements, and also just figure out how we can help government do what they're supposed to do in terms of looking after Fiji's biodiversity. Yeah. So it's become a national priority for Fiji now, yes. looking after the environment yeah. here. I've talked to a lot of scientists, in biologists in various fields of the life sciences, and so many of them in recent years have been doing research in the Pacific Islands. Mm-hmm. Is this the frontier of research into the life sciences, biological science, in this part of the world now? I think so. The Pacific Islands is a great laboratory. Islands themselves are laboratories, you know. They tell us how the world works, or they tell us how ecology is, because you can witness evolution on an island. You can witness succession on an island. And it's such a dynamic environment that's affected by, you know, tropical cyclones, earthquakes, tsunamis. And how do these islands recover after this? And that's, that makes it a great laboratory. And then on top of that is the, is the culture of the people that live on the islands and how they've adapted to the islands on which they live. So to do the science here, I suppose you have to be aware of what Fiji is in deep time. It's a volcanic island, as you said. So is it a fairly new island? It's 40 million years old. I mean, that's, that's the, the geologists say that Fiji started forming about 40 million years ago. So it's quite, quite young compared to the others. And so, therefore, any work that we do, any development that happens on an oceanic island has to take into account the fact that it's an oceanic island. It's not a continent. There have um, never been land bridges here then from... America or Australia or anything like that? As far as we know, no. (laughs) Not as far as you know. I say that because science is like that. You can be disproven. I was reading that there used to be, before humans came here, megafauna. Like like there was a a frog the size of a dinner plate and a pigeon like the size of an Alsatian dog. Yeah. It's like the the dodo of of Mauritius, right? We had large flightless birds. We had crocodile, we had tortoises, we had giant frogs, and Tonga had a giant iguana. Given that Fiji is a volcanic island, its landscape is pretty dramatic, what kind of different environments can you find across Fiji's islands? So Fiji is over 300 islands, and we have various types of landscapes. So the island of Vitilevu, which is um, the one we're on, the big island, the one that we're yeah. on, Um, There's several tectonic processes that happened here. First was those volcanic eruptions, and then there was a contraction. If you look out into the inland of Vitilevu, you'll see some rugged peaks. So that comes from like the tectonic plates squishing squishing the island. Stretching the island, and then it tilted, and then there was uplift. So in certain parts of Vitilevu, you find limestone above ground and at high places the Navo River, which is Fiji's third largest river, there's a part where there's a canyon and the water has cut through the canyon and you look on the walls of the canyon you can see coral, old coral embedded in the canyon. Ancient and coral ancient in, the, coral canyon, in right. the canyon. And this is because that area was once underwater and it was uplifted out of the ocean. We're in a forest at the moment. Are there different kinds of forests here? I know, there are different kinds of forests. So we're in a tropical rainforest, but we're in a tropical lowland rainforest. We also have the upland 
rainforest and then the montane forest. So it depends on what elevation that you're at, the forest dynamics change. So we're on the wet side of Fiji. On the dry side of Fiji is the dry forest. All around, we also have coastal forests that are closer to the ocean, and so they are adapted to more salinity, stronger winds. And then the little islands, they have what is called the small island forests. And then some of the islands are made of limestone, cast limestone. So you have, they have a different type of, of landscape, different type of vegetation. Where in Fiji did you grow up in? And yeah, what kind of what kind of forest or, or what kind of landscape did you did you grow up in? I um, I was fortunate that in the first five years of my life, my parents were based in a coastal community, just outside of Suva in the Serua, coastal coastal forest. But then during that time of growing up, my grandparents had a farm not far from here, into the interior of Fiji, a ginger farm. But then all around the ginger farm was forest but I never we never went into the forest we only stayed around the agricultural area forests were scary the forest was scary and it was also pretty rugged terrain so to get to the non-agricultural area we'd have to go down this steep cliff and cross the river and go across and it was just not not for us and this place you grew up in was it a village or a town of some kind it was a settlement of farming families and my grandparents they had migrated over from the island of Onoilau which is closer to Tonga than it is to Fiji, so it's that far. Um, so it's very strongly influenced by the Tongan culture. And my great-grandfather, he had this vision to have his grandchildren well-educated. And so he worked with individuals, and then they established like lots of land that they leased, and then he put his children to look after different parcels of land. And so my grandparents had one, and then my grandparents had only two children. And so they really focused on getting them to have a good education. My grandfather's brothers had lots of kids, so you know he had lots of hands to help him. But my grandparents didn't have that many, so they really just focused on getting my mother out of the farming life. And so she, she became a teacher, and my uncle became a pastor. And so what kind of work did you do on your grandparents' ginger farm? When I was growing up, it was at the, at the height of the, of the ginger industry in Fiji. And so during the school holidays, we'd come and we'd help pull out the weeds from the ginger farm. And it's time to harvest, we'd take it, put them in crates, and then take them down the road to the river where they would wash it. Uh, because there's no electricity, no running water on the settlement. So, yeah, we lived off the water tank. We bathed in a, in a little pond that had a, yeah, a spring. Yeah, and then we had to be very careful with the use of water. We couldn't jump into the pond, into the pond because then that would muddy the water. So yeah, I think that that all that those little things taking into consideration that it was limited thing that had a like a strong influence on what I do now. You're smiling as you're telling me the story. It sounds lovely. It also sounds like hard work to me. How do you think upon look upon that time? When I look back, my grandparents didn't make it seem like hard work. It was enjoyable. We liked it. I think that the hardest thing was just missing our parents because we stayed with our grandparents until we were of schooling age and then we could go and live with our parents. Yeah, they didn't make it seem like hard work. Yeah. But your parents were teachers, as you said. Did that mean they were ambitious for you and your education? Oh, yes, well, yeah. they yeah. were. So my dad is from the northern part of Vitilevu, which is from a province called Ra. He grew up in the village and also in the mining community. His father was a gold miner in the Vatukola gold mines. He had very strong ambitions. Like he, he, he said that when he was growing up, he wanted to become a lawyer. But a priest at the school that he attended, Xavier College, advised him, no, become a teacher. It's, uh, you know, it's a good profession. And so he went into teaching, and then that's how he met my mom. They met on the island of Vanuelevu. <laughs> so they're all from different books, and they met on the island of Vanuelevu. They're both teaching in rural areas. And then between them, they formed this vision that all the children would be well-educated because they always told us that education is our pathway out of poverty. They grew up, they struggled growing up. My mom always looks back and she says she hated living, she hated moving to Vitilevo. She loved the life on the island because her parents had a lovely home. They had access to food, you know, they could just go out and swim and and harvest their food. But when she came to the farm, 
she saw her parents struggle just to get money so that she could go to school. And it was the same with my father, but he had scholarships that allowed them to pursue a career in teaching. And then when they were teaching in Lomeri, which is the, the church compound that we grew up in, they had a really good mentor in the parish priest who always told them about family and then, you know, being a couple and then the need to to really nurture the children. So. Was church and singing a big part of your young life? Yes. My, my parents, so my dad became a Catholic when he was 13 years old, and it was his choice. His family was Seventh-day Adventist and Methodist, like various, but he found peace in the talking with the priests, talking with the nuns, and they, they nurtured his, his early life and his early notions of, of faith. And my mom came from a very strong Methodist background. So whenever we went to my grandparents' home, we went to the Methodist church. But she became a Catholic when she married my dad. And so the school was called Lomeri Secondary School. It was, a, it was a boarding school, and it was for children from the rural area, from very far, like from the Namosi Highlands. They would all come down to this boarding school. So I think that was a very strong part of it because they had to look after these young people from the interior parts of, of Fiji, and then between them they did charity work and they would go out and visit. And I remember being a small child and accompanying them to squatter settlements and praying with Hindu families and and all these little things that they did that you know, I didn't really think much about until later in life. And I go, gosh, they did a lot of stuff. They were involved in a lot of things. And, and yeah, and singing was it. It was not just singing in the church, but my dad was a storyteller. Like where he's from, they're known to be storytellers. And his grandfather told him stories, and that's how he entertained us. Either he entertained us through storytelling, or we'd sing together, or we'd pray together, or we'd walk, you know, like get, get out into the forest. When you say storytelling, do you mean like traditional legends? Traditional legends, yeah. He loved myths and legends. He did his bachelor's in, in art and literature. And so he would tell us these, these stories. And part of his studies was when he got a scholarship to go to Australia, part of his thing was retelling these stories. So he would dress in full costume of a Fijian warrior and tell his stories then. So many of those stories are about the creation of the land. I wonder if that had any effect on you wanting to become a scientist. I think it did. I know when I, when I think back. The poetic ways of telling. Yes. Uh, my dad was a poet and yeah. my mom always says that he's a dreamer. And so what he did, he would get us to tell the stories and then he'd get us to act it out. You know, Turukawa, the, the rooster, was crowing from... So my, my brother would sit on the windowsill and he'd be the rooster. And then, so we'd do little plays and dramas at home. And do you sometimes see how those stories overlap with real science? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we do. And now I really come to appreciate it more. And it just all makes sense. It helps me communicate with local communities because we can link their myths and legends with science. Ancient wisdom with new wisdom. Yes. Yeah. Is it joyful? It is. It is. I, I love the work that I do. There's so much unknown. Or when they, when they see the faces of the elderly, when they finally connect the dots, you know, when you say, oh, I saw this particular bird. And they said, oh, yeah, we see it all the time. Oh, but did you know that it's found only here and nowhere else in the world? And, and then when they start going, they go, oh, wow. So we have something of value our stories are of value and and i think that we don't we don't celebrate that enough and that's that's what i'd love to do is capture this information but help them retell it themselves so that's where you are now but when you came out of school you were a young woman who wants to pursue an education but you don't like touching frogs <laughs> you're frightened of crested iguanas dropping on tearing your flesh and the snake is kind of evil. Yeah. <laughs> How does a girl like that choose environmental science? I know. I remember being in high school and I really loved working with my dad and I wanted to be just like him. I wanted to do literature and arts. I was really into poetry. I joined the poetry program. And then so it came to that path in high school where you need to choose which stream you go into, whether it was science or arts. I wanted to go into the arts, and my parents said, no, just take science. And there are not many scientists in Fiji. And I felt disappointed, but, but then I also remember that I, I actually liked science. I, did, I got really good marks in science. 
So I said, okay, I'll try it. And then my dad said, because I wanted to be a lawyer, and my dad said, well, if you don't do well in this, when you go to university, I'll pay for your law degree. I said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> There's one thing I knew. I didn't want to be working in an office. I saw myself as someone who'd be either working in a lab or being outdoors because that's what I like doing. All the best scientists are arty scientists. Yeah. They need to see the world poetically as well as scientifically. <laughs> yeah, I've come to appreciate that because we're told that science is science. But really, if you look at the scientists, they are also artists, you know, and they love art. Because science is also beautiful and weird yes. and majestic and tiny and so much concerned with all the things that so much of art and literature is concerned yeah. with. Yeah. You have your hypothesis and then you disprove your hypothesis, you know, and so then science is that the logical way that you go through to try and disprove it. But as you're doing it, you learn so much more that there's so much more that's unexplained. That's the beauty of science. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. When you're doing a field trip, do you take time to talk to local people about traditional knowledge? Oh, yes, that's so key. That's so important in, in any work that we do because we can only be there for maybe two weeks, but the traditional knowledge has been there for much longer. And so it's a matter of what do you know about this and this is what I know, so how can then we work together to better understand what, we, what we're seeing? But what we're pushing for is to recognize the traditional ecological knowledge should be seen as a science and should be recognized as valid science, valid scientific information to be accepted. Thousands and thousands of years of oh, ob yes. observation. Yes. On the way in here, you were telling me about a special kind of cicada. Is, is that what we're hearing now? We're hearing one of the cicadas. Tell me about the life cycle of this cicada we're hearing at the moment. We have 19 subspecies of cicadas, and as far as we know... Again, these ones that we're hearing are annual. They, they go down in the ground and they come up every year. As far as we know, no one's actually really studied them to, to confirm that. But we know that there is one special one that has an eight-year life cycle. It lives underground for eight years and then it emerges. It lives underground for eight years? Yes. And then it emerges? Yes, so it's like a beetle. The insects emerge cased and then they crawl up a tree trunk or they're on, on the leaves. And then over a 45-minute period, the insect with wings emerges from this casing. It comes out really slowly. And the wings spread out. It comes out as a, as a beautiful aqua blue color. But then as it's sitting there, the color eventually changes into orange and black. And then that's when the wings harden out and then they start flying around, and then they mate, and then the female punches a hole in whatever tree, and they deposit their eggs in there, and then these adults die. And all this, this whole process is about one month to a one and a half month process. And then the females die, and then eventually, as far as we know, the larva then, or they, they stay in there for a while, and then the little ones crawl out, and then they fall, into the ground and they dig their way into the ground and they stay there for eight years and then emerge. Do they emerge one at a time or all at once? They come all at once in the same year. So you're saying like every eight years or so? Every eight years there's a mass emergence. And, and what happens then when all these cicadas come out of the ground? Do they eat every bit of vegetation inside? No. In the area that they were, all we could hear was them flying around and then, you know, getting into mate. So maybe the feeding period is really when they're in the ground. When they come out, it's just to mate. And it's a delicacy and they're tied to folklore. So what's the legend attached to these cicadas? So there's a story of these two warring tribes from the interior of Fiji uh, within the province of Navosa. 
there's a story of these two warring tribes and their leaders really got tired of being of fighting all the time and so they decided look let's end this war you know our people are suffering so they said okay let's gift each other with something to commemorate the end of our tribal wars and so one of the leaders he gifted the other with prawns he said may your rivers be rich with prawns this is my gift to you and the other gifted him with the nanai and he said the cicada the, the cicada we call it the nanai i give you the nanai and once every eight years your your land will prosper with the emergence of this nanai and he had gifted it to him at a pool and so the nanai in the in the legend once they emerge and the land is prosperous in that in that eighth year and then they would all disappear back into that pool never to be seen again until another eight years so the eight year cycle is known in traditional knowledge it's, then it's known in traditional knowledge and then in 2017 we tested this and we put out a campaign and said look if you've seen the if you've and it's a delicacy for for the inland parts of Fiji they they even have a chant with it and they they chant and and they see the the cicadas emerging and then they collect them and they and they eat them they either cook them in bamboo they fry them they're different various i've never tasted it <laughs> if that's what you're going to ask but my team that had gone out there they tasted it and they said they they really loved the taste so there's all this traditional knowledge that's associated with uh, with ananai you were telling me before there's two kinds of endemic frogs in fiji a tree frog and a ground frog ground frog is the large part of your research mm-hmm. into them do they live here in the forest like this on this island of uh, vitilevu as far as we know they're extinct but in 2008 we rediscovered them in a part of vitilevu and it's where i'm from the province of ra and it's from the nakovanda range which has a lot of history for fiji because in the folklore in the story of fiji's origins they say that the first fijians arrived and they and they came to this nakovanda mountain range and they dispersed to all other parts of fiji from this mountain range so it's got a lot of historical human footprint it's like a it's a patch of forest that's just surrounded by grasslands so it's like an island on its own an island and, within the island an right. island within and in this island we we rediscover the ground frogs when you say rediscover does does the public help you find these endangered species yes uh, we go on radio and ask them if they, if they've, if they've got it many times we don't know that we have it until we create awareness about it and that has really been what we've been doing since we were established in 2007 is letting the public know these are species that we have and can you let us know if you have it and then we start to tell them the story because we learned more about koala bears and and lions and tigers in primary school we didn't realize that we have a lot of really special things in our own backyard Well, koalas and lions are well, lion cubs anyway are adorable. Yes. These little frogs are kind of adorable too. <laughs> they, they are. And they're many different colors. Like I've taken one that's red, bright red. I've taken a yellow one and then when I show the pictures they go, "Is this here?" Is it? Yes. It's sometimes because we're so blinded by our fear that we don't really see the beauty of what we're looking at. It's called endangered. Yeah. Uh I presume that's loss of habitat or introduced species that predators but is it also possible that it's just not very well observed and that's it might be more common than people really it. would realize yeah that's exactly it so a lot of the species that we've some of the species that we've got on the IUCN red list of threatened species are, are data deficient it's only when we go out there and search for it that their status is is better improved so it's, it's easy to miss a little frog in the undergrowth isn't oh, yes, it oh yes it is so what happened when you went looking for this ground frog in the ranges you were talking about in the north of this island Vicky yeah. Neville. So I remember straight out of graduation from university a group of us secured a grant to further improve our knowledge of the Fiji ground frog like figure out which islands they are on if they are still there so two of our teammates went to the island of Ovala and all this time we'd be telling children because we'd have a children's program like we'd gather the children and tell them a story and we'd get them to sing the song about the cane toad that we learn as kids about how it came to Fiji and then how it's got the poison on its back and then when it gives birth it has millions of of babies and so we got them to sing it so that they they could like look at 
how in the song they're learning about the ecology of the cane toad. And so then we talk about the ecology of the ground frog. It's different. It doesn't do that. And it's special. And then we told them that, you know, the cane toad, they call to each other. You can hear the call, but the ground frog doesn't have a call. So we, this is the story we're taking around to all the communities. You're, that you're telling everyone with. the ground frog has no call. The ground frog has no call. Right. Yeah, it's silent. Like, unlike all the other frogs in many parts of the world, the ground frog is silent. This is what we were telling them. And then, then my teammates get to uh, Chwap and Tamara. They get to the island of Ovalau. And Chwap is my cousin from the maternal side. And so we mutually have relatives in this particular village. And he was telling them the story. And then a little five-year-old raises a hand and said, no, I've heard the ground frog call. He said, really? <laughs> you know, there's a snow, can't be. And so uh, I said, yes. And so then he said, okay, this evening we'll go and find out if that's true. And it was an evening where there was a little bit of drizzle and they walked into the, into the forest and then they sat down and listened and it started calling. Like a whistle? Yes. A whistling frog? Yes. I've never heard of such a thing. Yeah. It but whistles. No wonder. It really so, like you'd think that was a bird, maybe. Yeah. And, and so you heard this whistling, and did you then, what did you then do once you heard it? They confirmed it. They like, confirmed that, yes, that's the call. They found the, they found the frog. So is that why people missed it? Because probably whoever why. heard of a whistling frog? Yeah. So we went back to Viewer Island, which is where I eventually did my master's, because that's where we first encountered ground frog work. And we had this field guide called Inoke, and he was the one that took us out into the forest the first time that we were there, myself, Choape, Tamara, and Isaac. He took us around the island when our lecturer told us, go out there, explore the habitat, and then, you know, we'll figure out what we're going to do. And when we were out in the forest, again, first time going out in the forest at night, really scary. And what made it worse was that the guides told us, when we're out in the forest, don't ask us where we're going. Why? Because the spirits will hear you and we will get lost. That's, you know, so we were not allowed to ask, are we there yet? Or where are we going? Is this the way? We we're not allowed to ask that at all. You just let the guide take you. <laughs> and then we'd be going and Inoki would be singing at the top of his voice. I guess the more noise you make, the less scared you feel, right? And so we'd be doing that. And then we, then we thought, then why didn't we hear the ground frog calling viewer? So the next time we went there, we said, Noke, keep quiet. We're going to listen out for the frogs. So we sat there and listened and we heard the call. You said they're different tones. Different, to, like from um, when they look at it on, on the on the frequency. Like to us, I can I can hear it. It's it's all the different same. Different pitch, to me. like pitch. Yeah. Like that's different, like that. You mean like different pitch? Um, to me, it's all the same. But when they when they tried to transcribe it, they said that it it kept changing. So what does that imply? Does it imply that there's different calls for diff- that mean different things? Is it a mating it call? We, we don't, don't know. know. We never really got to, to that far. And that's, again, as I always tell my team, that's a good piece of research. <laughs> so it seems a little poignant. Yeah. A little ground frog in the undergrowth whistling perhaps for a mate or and, for company. And or... the thing <laughs> is that, so, and then we said, oh, it's the females. It's both the males and the, so we told Dr. Phil Bishop that it's the males and the females. They both call. Like we could have sworn we saw the females, like, you know, that we were watching it call and we captured it and we looked at it and it was a, and it was a female. But the thing with the ground frogs is, the Fiji ground frogs, you can't really tell if it's a male or female unless it's got eggs in it. Because unlike other frogs, which uh, the males have a, like have a nuptial pad on their, on their thumb to help them with mating, it's not in our ground frogs. But then the frogs that we've heard call are usually the, the small ones. And so, again, you know, unless, you, you, won't, you won't be able to tell if it's male or female un- unless you, you dissect it. But typically the females will be the, will be the larger frogs. So, Nunya, if, if the locals weren't aware, that, well, apart from this kid, mm. that the ground frogs were making that noise, what did they think it was? <laughs> That's a funny one. So I was on Vanua Levu, the big island, and I remember going into the Natiao Peninsula, which is, again, another special part of Fiji uh, as part of a bird life program. When I was there, I asked them, hey, do you have ground frogs in your forest? And they said, no, we don't have ground frogs. We only have the tree frogs. I said, you sure? 
said, yeah. So, because I'd gone around the back of the village and I looked around and I said, hmm, if I was a ground frog, I'd be here. You know, that's, that's the thought that came to me. I said, okay. So then that night I asked someone from the village, hey, can you come with me? I just want to check out if there are frogs in this area. And so we got to a, a stream and I could see all the undergrowth. It's pretty much like this. Like this is where a ground frog would be. You know, it's got like a lot of, of understory, uh, yeah. lots of ferns. Yeah. And it's cool. And so I whistled because if you whistle, they'll start calling back to mark their, basically to, you know, say, don't come here, marking their territory. Oh, it could be a territorial yes, claim Yes, it could then. be a territorial one. So I called and then all these calls were coming back at me. And then I went and caught one and I took it to the village and said, this is the ground frog I was looking for. Are you sure it's territorial? Are you sure it's not a mating call? <laughs> Are you sure, know. Nonio, you're not making these frogs fall in love with you? <laughs> we don't know. So when I took it to the village and I said it to the, I told them about it, and they said, wait, that's the ground frog calling? And then one of the old men said, you know, we'd go uh, catching prawns at night in these rivers. And then as soon as we hear those calls, we're like, oh, it's the devil. And we'd run back home. <laughs> <laughs> the devil's because, whistling yeah, at them. they're whistling at you. <laughs> oh. But because the, the tree frog also has a call, but it's like a dripping tap, and we knew that. That was known. You've also been looking into the world of the crested iguanas of Fiji. They live in the tropical dry forests on the western side of the island. How are those tropical dry forests doing? Not well. There's only about 2% remaining. The most, most part of Western Vitilevu would have been tropical dry forest. And all, a lot of that has either been burnt out because they're susceptible to fire because it's so dry. So a lot of that has now become uh, grassland areas or they're converted into sugarcane fields or basically just been burnt. And so a lot of the islands in the Western part of Fiji, the Yasawas, the Mamanuthas, those all have tropical dry forest and they were burnt and some of them have become where they put the goats and they eat the food that the iguanas eat and so they compete with them for the food. Now there are other introduced species that compete with them or eat them? Feral cats, mongoose, we suspect that's why there's no crest, more crested iguanas in, on Vitilevo. Mongoose? Mongoose. What are mongooses doing in oh. Fiji? <laughs> They were brought in as part of a, as a biological control for the rats in the sugarcane oh, industry. No, so that's your cane toad, is it? <laughs> it was a sugarcane industry that brought that in. And so the mongoose eat the lizards. So a lot of ground nesting and ground dwelling birds have disappeared from Vitilevu because of the presence of the, of the mongoose. How about the international sort of wildlife smuggling trade? Are uh, oh, they yeah. caught up in that too? Yes, especially for the crested iguanas. Because they're beautiful. It's quite, they're beautiful. Yeah. And, and we've had smugglers caught at the border. or We've had animals confiscated. One of the recent confiscations was in Spain, and there were crested iguanas amongst the animals confiscated there. It sounds like talking to local Fiji people is a big part of your job. It is. You know, when that study was done, there was really low ownership of it all. Now we're more conscious and more aware from where we were in 2007. We're getting more queries and we're getting more complaints like, hey, these guys are taking, you know, we have seen this bird. Do you know what it is? What should we do to help it? And like there's really been a, a huge change in, in the attitude towards biodiversity. Older people are obviously going to be very helpful with this because they've had the life experience to observe these creatures and probably remember, remember a time when Fiji wasn't as developed as it is now. What about younger people? There's definitely a gap in our knowledge in terms of knowledge being passed down. And I think like the rest of the Pacific, we're losing the traditional ecological knowledge. And that's why in our programs, we have a specific children's program and also storytelling because a lot of our stories or knowledge is passed down orally. And so one of the things that we, we try to do when we engage with communities is is get the elders to reconnect with the children. I think Professor Konaiha Luthayman once said it in 2010 when we were commemorating the International Year of Biodiversity. She said, the education system has contributed to the loss of our traditional ecological knowledge because we've tried to build a Pacific people to become doctors and nurses, to go into these professions that when they fail in the formal education system and they get sent back to the village 
they don't know how to apply the knowledge that they've gotten. You know, what we should really be doing is look at our oceanic island system and build up careers or a way of life that can support the fragile systems that we live in. You know, we should have been investing in, in farming in a way that, that is suitable for the system that we're in. We're trying to form monocrops, right, where traditionally we grew up in an agroforestry system. And that's had a lot of impact on the environment. I remember going to certain parts of Fiji where children are in boarding school as young as kindergarten and primary school. They're with the school more than they're with their parents and their grandparents. And so we've lost that opportunity for them to learn from their grandparents because otherwise it's you're, you're spending time with your parents and your grandparents going into the forest, collecting firewood, collecting medicine, and then you're just learning as, you, as you're going along. They've lost that opportunity because they've gone into the formal education system. So you never wanted to work in an office. No. And we're sitting here in this rainforest that's like a cathedral. It's so beautiful. It sounds amazing. It smells great. How glad are you your parents and grandparents said, go and do science? I'm very grateful to them. Um, because I wouldn't be where I am if they hadn't pushed me in that direction. And then along the way, I've had great mentors who've, like, who've just seen my potential more than me. I never would have dreamed that I'd be where I am today. It's, uh, I guess, I, I remember asking one of the, my teachers who had recommended me for the scholarship program. I said, you know, I was not a straight-A student. I had to work hard to, to get the grades that I got. So why did you recommend my name for the scholarship? And he said, because you were an enthusiastic learner, you know, and you enjoyed being out. Like, you know, when we'd go out into the, to do field work, you'd be asking a lot of questions and you'd be curious. And I thought, and that was, not, that was a quality that I did not know that I had. And it's a quality that's usually frowned upon, like traditionally, you know, they call you, like when you ask questions, they go, that's not your business. You know, that's really what we, we grew up with, yeah? And I remember one of my aunts described my nature. She said, you know, you're someone who likes to, we call it talase, which means you're, you're always looking into corners and trying to discover what's there, which is, um, which is a bad thing. Like a sticky beak. Yeah, it's a, it's a bad thing yeah. in, the, in, the, in the culture, but that's what, you know, makes you a scientist, I guess. <laughs> An official sticky beak. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, I'm grateful to my parents and all the, the teachers. I had great teachers and, and the mentors that I've had along the way. Anya, thank you very much for bringing me to this place and for telling me your story. Thank you for having this opportunity to do this. Naka.
is the classic Fijian farewell song known as Issa Lei, and that's a traditional vocal arrangement credited to Nawaka Entertainment Group in Amori Tako Aria. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. I'm Bobby McCumber the host of a brand new podcast from ABC Radio Australia called Stories from the Pacific. The tradition of storytelling is such a huge part of life in the Pacific. Stories connect generations. Dad and I really had to learn how to be father and son. Bridge political differences. Sports can be like soft diplomacy. Record histories. It's a repetitive pattern of a man marrying and divorcing and then marrying again, divorcing. And create community. There was never a moment I felt like I didn't have the support system. Stories from the Pacific draws you deep into the lives of Pacific Islanders who have seen and done amazing things. You can find Stories from the Pacific every week on your favourite podcast app or the ABC Pacific website.